semester, we have been marching our way through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, because it's Halloween week, I did, I did not time it this way. I think providentially it fell this way that the, the passage that we find ourselves looking at next is a story about this really creepy, scary guy who's possessed by a demon. So perfect timing with that, but we find ourselves now in the uh, beginning of Mark chapter 5. So if you have one of these little sheets, or if you have a Bible, or if you have some way to access it, access it, and I'll read it, and we'll jump in and chat about it. It says this, beginning in verse 1. They, that's Jesus and his disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we jump in and look at it, okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will you guide us, will you teach us, will you direct us into truth and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that would be malleable to sense and to experience and see that which is truthful, that which is beautiful, that which is good, that which is right. So do that because we cannot do it apart from your help. We would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by asking uh, a question. And here's the question. How do you change? How do people change? Here's another question. If you find yourself to be a spiritual person, uh, how do you grow spiritually? If you're on the outside of Christianity looking in, you may be wondering this, this question of how do you become a Christian? Those three questions. How do you grow? 
How do you change? How do you become a Christian? I want to try to argue with you tonight that all three of those questions have the same answer. And to kind of get at that, let, let me set this up by telling you about my daughter. We have a three-year-old daughter, Zoe Kate, and uh, I often find myself telling her what to do and what not to do. So I will find myself saying things like, I did this morning, stop, kick, stop kicking your brother in the face, because that's what she was doing. He was under the table and she was just hammering away at his face. Can you please not do that? Uh, I find myself saying, please do not throw your yogurt against the wall. Do not eat that off of the ground. Please stop whining. And usually whenever my commands come to her, that provokes one of two responses in her. One response is just outright defiance. She's got something she's about to eat it. Zoe Kate, do not eat that. And she looks at me. And in the mouth it goes. It's just the middle finger to daddy when she does that. <laughs> or when my command comes to her, and you know, I say do this or don't do that, it, it, it sends her spiraling into you know, this meltdown of tears and guilt and shame, and she just kind of obliterates into this puddle. But usually, those are the two responses. Sometimes, every now and then, after I say it over and over and over and over, sometimes she'll obey. Sometimes. But usually, it's one of two responses. Defiance or guilt, shame. But when I read her story at night, it's a completely different scenario. I don't have to fight for her attention. We sit in, on her little bed and we pound through you know, two or three books. Dora the Explorer has often worked its way into the catalog. And so when we're sitting there reading Dora, she's completely focused, completely engaged, completely interactive. You know, She's pointing out map and boots and swiper, and the backpack, and so she's totally engaged with this. Even when we're not reading the book, and we're going kind of about our day, she's uh, thinking about Dora, she's singing the Dora songs, and she's saying, swiper, no swiping. And so she's, this little story has captured her imagination. The reason I bring this up is when you ask that question, okay, how do you change? How do you grow? How do you become a Christian? The way, the answer to those questions is not through following commands. Fundamentally, the way that you change as a person, the way that you grow as a Christian, and the way that you become a Christian is not through fundamentally submitting yourself to more rules, modifying your behavior, making more New Year's resolutions, and trying harder. All of that definitely has a place within sort of the Christian picture. But fundamentally that's not the answer to those questions. The way that you change, the way that you grow, the way that you become a Christian is when you get lost in the story. That's how you change as a person. That's how you grow as a Christian. That's how you become a Christian is when your imagination is captured up by the story of the gospel and you find yourself fixated on it. You find yourself living in it. You find yourself living out of it. And so really, the, the story that we just read, if I can put it this way, it, it's like a prototype of the bigger gospel story. It is a microcosm of the larger, deeper story of the gospel. So if we're going to understand the bigger story of the gospel and unlock that story and potentially maybe have our imaginations engaged and our lives transformed, then we really have to understand this little story. Because this story will help unlock the bigger story. So here are the three things that we're going to see from this particular story tonight. And again, these are prototypical of the bigger story. 
Jesus pursues, Jesus restores, and Jesus sins. Not sins, S-I-N-S, but sins with a D, S-E-N-D-S. So those are the three things. He pursues, he transforms, or he restores, and he sins. Okay? Here's the first thing. He pursues. The story begins by telling us that Jesus and his crew, his disciples, are in this boat, and they are making their way to this region intentionally, this region called the region of the Gerasenes. Now, that doesn't mean anything to you or to me, but that would have meant everything to a Jewish person at this time and age because the region of the Gerasenes was Gentile territory. And to a Jewish mind, Gentile territory was unclean. It was unsafe. It was dangerous. It was the other side of the railroad tracks. It was the bad neighborhood. Every Jewish kid growing up would have been told by his mother, you do not go there. And yet this is where Jesus is going. If you were with us last week, we saw in the previous chapter, Jesus gets with his disciples, gets in a boat, and he says, I want to go across this lake. This huge storm comes up on the way. Storm gets dealt with. But they get to the other side, and this is where Jesus is beelining to. This is where Jesus is like a heat-seeking missile shooting directly to this area. So when they get there, they dock the boat, they get out, and immediately this man who is buck naked starts screaming and sprinting towards them. Now, I would imagine if I were the disciples, I would have been a little bit like, Okay, see, this is why we didn't want to go here, Jesus. This was a lovely field trip, but um, let's get back in and go to the other side. So, okay, let's talk about this guy, because really this story centers around this dude, this completely naked, crazy dude. What do we we find out about him? Okay, look at it with me. Here's what it says in verse 3. First thing we find out, it says that he lives among the tombs. He's living in a graveyard. And he has surrounded himself with death. That's the first thing we find out. Here's the the next thing. It says in verse 2 that he has an unclean spirit or an evil spirit. In in other words, he's possessed by demons. Now, if you're anything like me, you you, you read stuff like that in the Bible, and it's just like chafes against your modern, intellectual, Western sensibilities because you're like, demon possession, really? Are there going to be like... Boogie monsters coming out in the next passage. Like, what do you do with this? And obviously, this is a much bigger topic than we can really kind of get into. But let me just kind of say one kind of thing in passing. The Bible is just sort of unashamedly supernatural. It says, you know, we we inhabit a universe where there is a divine supernatural person at the control center. So within the Christian system, it is not irrational to assume. Just because if there are good supernatural people, there would be bad supernatural people. That's about all that I can say in this time and space. Come grab a milkshake with me and we can talk about demons. Here's the next thing we learn about this next dude. This this dude. Look at verse 3. It says he's uncontrollable. He's uncontrollable. Uh, No one could chain him. He, He was so strong... He, you know, people would put iron chains on him and he'd be like just like the Hulk and just sort of break out of the chains and sort of break out. But the, the, the thing that's interesting is that it says that they used to chain him, which means that they used to try to help this guy. They used to try to contain him and help him, but they've given up on him. They've written him off. They just kind of don't want anything to do with him and left him alone. 
Here's the next little thing that we find, about him, find out about him. Verse 5. We find out that he's in pain. It says in verse 5 that he spends his nights crying. Crying out. He spends his nights crying. He's unbelievably isolated. Experiencing unbelievable amounts of pain. And my guess is, you can relate to this dude. Even though you may not be naked and demon-possessed. Here is this guy that is isolated, written off. It says, that, that in, it says in verse 5 that he cuts himself with stones. He, he, he's, he's a slave to this sort of inner chaos that he's experiencing. My guess is you can kind of identify at some level with this guy. Maybe for some of you, uh, you feel given up on. You feel written off by the people that have tried to help you in the past but have given up on you. You feel written off by your parents. Maybe you feel written off by an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend. You feel like unwanted garbage that people just don't want anything to do with. And I know what it's like, especially your first year at UT. I don't know what it's like personally, but from what I've heard, this can be an incredibly lonely place where you feel like, I'm looking for friends, I'm desperate for friends, I was, this friend group, I was with this friend group, but they proved to be really shallow because they want to go this direction, I want to go this direction, and now I don't feel like I have anybody. And it can be really easy to feel like you're completely written off, completely unwanted. Some of you, just like this guy, I'm guessing you can't sleep at night. Where you're up at night, buried under your own guilt or anxiety for one reason or another. Or maybe you can't sleep at night because, just like this guy, you find yourself crying without any sort of explanation. Or you find yourself, I can't sleep at night because I can't turn my brain off. I'm so dialed into my work. Like when, even though I'm not in the library, I can't turn it off. My mind's always working through the to-do list, everything that I've got to do, and I can't sleep because of it. Maybe some of you are like this guy where you actually do hurt yourself, cut yourself, razors, knives, lit cigarettes, something to inflict pain on your body. Some of you may be like this guy where you uh, inflict pain on your body by just starving yourself, damaging your physical body so that you you look a certain way. Or some of you may may, um, feel like this guy where, where you just sort of have that inner chaos, that inner, like your emotions are out of control. You know what I'm talking about? Where where some moments it just feels like there's this uncontrollable rage in you and then like unexplainably the next like moment there's this like wave of sadness that just sort of buries you. just feels like you're completely a slave to just your emotions. They're all over the place. They're completely out of control. So here we find this guy who is a complete mess, a complete train wreck. He's isolated. He is in pain. He is self-destructive. He's by himself. And here's who Jesus pursues. This is the person that Jesus is beelining it for. This is the person that Jesus is running aggressively after, willing to undergo a storm, and a massive storm on the sea to get to this guy. What we find out is that n- nobody is ever too bad for Jesus. You are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And I really do believe the reason that you're in your, this room right now, sitting in these chairs, could it not be true that maybe Jesus is pursuing you right now? That the way that your week has orchestrated, the, the way that your kind of schedule has fallen down, you find yourself sitting here interacting with this passage, interacting with Jesus in this time and space. And maybe what he's doing, he's pressing. 
and he's pressing on certain areas of your life to expose and to show, man, the way that I'm living my life right now is miserable and it's empty and it's getting me, it's getting me nowhere. And maybe Jesus is trying to wrestle with you and pursue you and aggressively say, hey, have you ever considered that maybe what you're actually living for is not it? That's the first thing that we see. Jesus pursues people like this, messy, out of control, chaotic, self-destructive people. People like this, people like me, people like you. That's the first piece of this picture. Here's the next piece. Not only does he pursue, but he restores he restores. Look at this. Um, you know, it's interesting. If you look at verse 7, this man, uh, let me read it to you. Verse 7 says this. It says, he, the man, shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. It says that the man said that. It doesn't say that the demon said that. And what's really interesting is, you know, if I were the man and I saw Jesus run up, you know, come up, and I would have run up to him, and I would have been like, dude, Jesus, you've got to help me, you've got to fix me, there's this demon in me, it's wrecking my life, my life is miserable, help, 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 help. But that's not what he says. He says, don't torture me, to Jesus. And and what I think is really interesting about this, you get this little clue about how the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of Satan, actually operates and tells us lies. Because I, I really do believe that sin whispers to us, Satan whispers to us, and tells us, that Jesus' redemptive help is actually torture. Jesus' involvement in your life, he says, is going to be torturous. I mean, think about it. If you have something in your past, something in your story, something that's been done to you or something that you have done that is unbelievably shameful and you don't want anybody to know about, you want to keep that thing buried and pretend that it never happened and pretend that no one, and, and just hope and pray that nobody ever discovers this about you. Because what you're Believing is, if they know this about me, they will want nothing to do with me. They will think I'm gross. They will think that I am uh, a freak. And so you have this message that is being communicated to you from within. i got to keep the secret. Nobody can find out about this. And yet when Jesus comes into your life, he says, the way to healing is to be transparent. To let somebody, somebody who's trusted, in on that aspect of your story. And everything in you says, that feels like torture. That feels like death. If, if, if I'm going to follow Jesus' redemptive plan for my life and let somebody into that part of my story, it feels like death. And yet you know if you don't, that thing will just rot you out from the inside out. And yet Jesus' redemptive plan for your life, his redemptive healing for your life is to say, let it out. Bring what is in the dark into the light. Otherwise, it's going to, go, it's going to grow and fester and make your life more miserable. It works the same way with forgiveness. If someone hurts you, wounds you, everything in you is to say, I will not forgive this person. Because if I forgive them, that, that relinquishes my control. That, that you know, I, I'm vulnerable again to them. What if, they, what if they do it again? What if they hurt me again? And so everything in you, which I think is Satan in some sense whispering into your ear, do not forgive. Because Jesus is saying, okay, the way to healing, Jesus' redemptive plan for your life is to say forgive. You know, Anne Lamott, great writer, Christian author, um, she has this um, way of talking about this particular aspect where she says withholding forgiveness is like taking rat poison and then by doing that, thinking that it will kill the rat. And her point is, when you withhold forgiveness, it, it doesn't affect the other person 
more than it affects you. And you rot from the inside out. You become bitter. You become hardened. You become cynical. You become uh, controlling of the other person. You become mean. That's what happens when you withhold forgiveness. And everything in you says, I will not do it. Because Jesus' redemptive plan feels like torture. But your sin and Satan, they're liars. Here's one more example. Jesus' redemptive healing for your life says, I want you to follow my agenda for your sexuality. And everything in you says that feels like torture. What, what, Jesus? I'm going to go against every urge, instinct, impulse that I have to follow you? That feels like death. That feels painful. That feels miserable. Your plan for my life feels like torture. And yet you know, if you've experienced it, when you go against the grain of his redemptive plan for your life, you're the one that gets broken. You're not just breaking arbitrary laws. You're breaking yourself. You're damaging yourself, you're damaging the other person, you're damaging your future marriage if you have one. Jesus' redemptive plan for your life is not torture, and yet that's exactly what our sin twists it to interpret it as. So, back to the story. Jesus interacts with this guy and he asks him his name. And the guy says, Legion. It's a little bit of a technical term because legion is the, is the technical term for um, a Roman army of 6,000 soldiers. So, you know, scholars kind of pontificate that perhaps he had somewhere of up to 6,000 demons inside of him. So what you have here is you have Jesus going toe-to-toe with like this army of darkness, like this army of demons. And what Jesus does is he says, get out. He speaks a word, and the demons are cast out. And then look at verse 15. This man is transformed, renovated, restored. It says he is sitting there clothed, put some clothes on this dude, and he's in his right mind, where he was once running around, out of control, destructive, violent. Now we find him at peace, calm. His sanity is restored. And it's really interesting. Uh, you know, but Before we jump to the next the last point. Uh, I, w- I want you to look at how the crowd responds. Because I think this is really fascinating. The crowd does not throw a party. You have to imagine, this is, the people in this town, this dude was a menace to society. He was a blight against them. He was an embarrassment. They wanted nothing to do with him. And now he's fixed. Now he's healed. But nobody's happy. Nobody throws a party. In fact, everyone is totally angry. And they tell Jesus to leave. Now, why is that? Well, okay, in order to heal this man, he, Jesus sends these demons into these 2,000 pigs that were just sort of chilling nearby, and they run off the cliff and, like, drown in the water. And there's a lot, I've read lots of different um, scholars and commentators that try to figure out what in the world is going on with those pigs, and there's enough confusion about it that is confusing me, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the deals with these pigs and why they have to go swimming and die. But I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to remember that this is Gentile territory. Very important because Jewish people did not eat pork. Sad thing, but Jewish people did not eat pork. Gentile people did. And this is a Gentile pig farm. So when Jesus comes through, he basically wipes out 2,000 of their livestock. This decimates this town economically. This is a massive hit to their business. So when they get there and they see Jesus has wiped out 2,000 of sort of 
a, a very important animal, in my opinion, they are angry about it and they want Jesus to leave. And, and here's why. Because this cost a ton of money for them. To heal Legion was unbelievably costly. And the bottom line was, sadly, for them, it wasn't worth it. This dude was not worth the cost. But of course, for Jesus, absolutely it was worth it. Because for Jesus, it didn't just cost him 2,000 pigs. Ultimately, to save Legion, it was going to cost him his life. The only way that Jesus, that Jesus could heal Legion, it was going to cost him something way more, way more expensive than just a herd of pigs. If you go to the end of the Gospel of Mark, it's very fascinating. Just like Legion, you see Jesus naked, strung out on a cross. Just like Legion, you see Jesus outside of the city among the tombs. Just like Legion, you see Jesus being written off by all of his friends, and not only his friends, but by his heavenly Father. Just like Legion, you see Jesus being cut. What's going on? Jesus is taking his place. The only way that Jesus can heal and stop sin and death and Satan is to become our substitute. And that's what we see him doing. At the cross, we see Jesus becoming legion, as it were, and being crushed under the hammer of God's righteousness so that he and so that you and so that I can be restored. Bottom line is that legion was worth it to Jesus, which means that you are worth it too. You, it, was, it was worth Jesus to give up his life in order to get you. And really, I don't think you believe that. I, I don't believe that. The way that I know that you don't believe that is because often when I sit down and talk with you, you, um, you feel that your problems, your issues, your story is a burden. You don't want to talk about your life to other people because you feel like it's, it's going to burden them. So you, you don't want to burden other people with your problems. And what you basically are saying when you say that is you think, my problems are not worth another person's time. And it's a lie. It really is. Your problems are worth it. Of course, you are, you are worth it to Jesus. Worth it enough for him to leave, to pursue, to be crushed in order to get you. Of course you're worth it. So we see Jesus' pursuit, he pursues, he restores. Last thing, he sins with a D. He sins. It's interesting, if you look at the last three verses, verse 18 through 20, all these people are begging Jesus to leave. Dude, you've got to get out of here. In verse 18, we see this man, he's begging to go with Jesus. He's like, dude, I, I want to go with you. Let's go back across the sea. I want to be like involved in ministry with you. I want to be an overseas missionary with Jesus. He wants to be in ministry with Jesus. And look at verse 19. Jesus turns him down. He's like, no, nah, I'm good. Got this already. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus turn this guy down? Because if you think about it, I, mean, I would think this dude could pack out auditoriums to tell his story. Like, dude, I was possessed with 6,000 demons, and then Jesus came in and fixed me. Like, now y'all need to come to Jesus. Like, he would be a major asset to Jesus' ministry. But what Jesus does, he doesn't receive him. He sends him. And look at where he sends him. Verse 19. Go home. Go to your family and your friends and tell them about my mercy. Go home and tell people what I've done for you. He doesn't say start a ministry. He doesn't say start an evangelistic program. 
He says, you don't need you know, seminary training. You don't need to be on a leadership team. Just says, go home to the people that you interact with day in and day out, the people that you rub shoulders with, and tell them about what I've done for you. Now, if you think about that, that's really hard to do. And if you're a Christian, it is very easy to get very excited and passionate about doing something for the kingdom over there, somewhere else, China, Africa, India, somewhere else in Knoxville. It's really easy to get excited about doing something for the kingdom somewhere else and completely neglect the fact that Jesus has sent you somewhere right here, right now, with where you are as a student, the people that you live with, the people that you interact with, the people that you rub shoulders with. I mean, the reason why you are living where you are living is intentional. Jesus put you there. Jesus has sent you there. The people that are living on your hall is intentional. The people in your frat or in your sorority, that is, you know, that's intentional. Jesus put you there for a reason, and he's sending you, if you're a believer, to go love them and serve them and tell the gospel and embody the gospel to them. It is, it's, it's just so much easier to say, I, I'm going to go across the world for a week and clean up a, a, a hurricane-damaged place than it is to clean up my dishes for my roommate. It's, so, it's just so much easier to go somewhere else and love and serve other people over there than it is to love and serve the people that you live with. It's, very, it's so much easier to give a summer or a semester to go serve someone else over there than it is to give forgiveness to your roommate or to ask forgiveness of, from your roommate. You know, C.S. Lewis has this unbelievable uh, book. I, I, I reread it last summer, um, Screw Tape Letters. Uh, but the basic setup, if you're unfamiliar, is you've got this mentor demon that's coaching this younger demon on how to, like, screw this one Christian's life up. This patient, as they call him. And here's what he says at one point. Uh, The older demon says, look, there is going to be some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. In other words, there's going to be some love and there's going to be some hatred all kind of mingled up in that person's soul. And here's what he says. The great thing, the thing that you need to do is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbor's whom he meets every day, and then thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference to people he doesn't even know. The malice thus becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary. That's unbelievable if you caught it. But here's what he basically is saying. He said, C.S. Lewis is saying, if, if you are a person, if you're a Christian, you consider yourself a Christian, and you have enthusiasm and passion and excitement to go love and to serve people somewhere else that you haven't met yet. And yet, the people that you live with and amongst and interact with day in and day out, you are bitter towards, you're angry towards, you are building up resentment towards. According to C.S. Lewis, that's demonic. It's satanic. It's not Christian. You know, there's this, you know, the, the trend among food stuff right now is like to buy local. You know what I mean? Like support local farms. I really think Christians need to reclaim that and sort of make that our own and say, okay, we're going to commit to loving locally. Sure, yeah. We, we, someone needs to be sent to Africa and China. Sure, 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 sure. That's, that's, someone needs to go there. But until someone goes there, until you go there, if God calls you there, he is sending you to love locally. 
the people that you live with, the people that are on your hall, the people in your neighborhood, the people in your classes, the people in your sorority or your fraternity. That's a hard calling, but that's where we're sent to be. That's where we are sent. He pursues, he restores, and then he sends. Primarily to your local location. I'll end with this. Two, two more questions, two more scenarios. Here's the first scenario. Let me set it up this way. You know when you're at home and you're watching TV, and let's just say you're watching a show that's, that's incredibly suspenseful and your heart is racing and your palms are sweaty and you're totally locked in, or you're watching The Walking Dead and zombies are kind of doing their thing and you're kind of freaking out, you're on the edge of your seat and you're scared, or you're watching like a really sad movie and you're bawling and weeping and... I mean, have you ever thought about this? Why, why are you so emotionally engaged? Because in that moment, if you were to actually kind of take a picture of what's happening in reality, there's no zombie in your living room. You're sitting on the couch in your pajamas with ice cream watching a screen. So why are you, you know, freaking out? <laughs> so somebody likes ice cream in, in The Walking Dead. <laughs> or, you know, if you're, if you're watching, uh, you know, a movie and, and you know... Reality is that a little dog didn't just die. You're in your bed like with your laptop and you're bawling. So, so why are we so emotionally engaged in these stories? That's the first question. Here's the second question. I'll set up this way. In 1999, I was a senior in high school. And I got tickets to the Saturday morning premiere that just come out of Star Wars Episode One. Thank you, thank you. Let's just close in prayer right here. This is a good spot. So I find myself in line, because you know, you have to wait this long line to get in, and I'm standing in line with people dressed up as Chewbacca, uh, stormtroopers, other things I didn't know how to identify, and so here's the question. Why is it that that particular story had so captured people's imagination that they actually dressed differently. It so altered their behavior that they dressed differently. So here are the two questions. Why do, why do good stories engage our emotions? And why do good stories actually even alter our behavior? To even sometimes changing what we wear. And the answer is because that's what good stories do. When you are lost in a good story, it captures your emotions, it captures your imagination, and it changes your behavior. So how do you change? How do you grow as a Christian? How do you become a Christian? It's when you let this bigger story of the gospel begin to capture your imagination. And your emotions begin involved. And you're fixated and you're transfixed. And your life and your behavior is altered because Jesus has pursued you. Jesus has restored you. And Jesus is sending you somewhere. The invitation for you tonight and the invitation for me tonight is to really to live in light of that story and then to live out of that story. That's your invitation. Let me pray. Father, would that story um, really capture our hearts, really move us, change us, melt us? Father, you know good stories do this. Systems of rules don't. Would you inspire us with your love, with your grace, with your radical, aggressive pursuit of us in your son Jesus? And would that radically transform us, make us radically different people that love our neighbor, that love to serve the people that are right next to us? Would it be true in my heart? Would it be true in these folks' heart as well? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.